So here it is, uh, Thanksgiving Sunday, and obviously an opportune time to focus on the theme of giving thanks. And yet, at the same time, we are also uh, coming to the end of a 12-week series of messages on the subject of shalom, God's peace at work in our lives. And so for 12 weeks now, we've been studying this topic, this biblical theme um, of shalom, which is essentially the wellness and fullness of life and peace that God desires for us. And I hope you've found uh, some of the messages over these last 12 weeks to be compelling and inviting, because really the heart of what I've wanted to share uh, over this time is that the more we seek shalom, the more we experience shalom. And shalom is indeed the blessing of God, the fullness of life that God intends and desires for us. So what's, uh, I think, rather fun and cool about um, this text in Colossians chapter 3 is that it actually, if you noticed, brings together the themes of shalom and thanksgiving. In fact, the two are connected and related in a very significant way that I want to share with you this morning. So before we move on to a different focus for the upcoming season of Advent, um, my heart is to kind of wrap up our series of messages, studies on the subject of shalom, and what I hope is that my message this morning will be something like an exclamation point on the end of that series. The experience of shalom is a wonderful gift from God. It's the life that God wants for us. And of course, there's a gap, right, between the life that we typically experience from day to day and life as it could be in the fullness of the Spirit. So the idea, the challenge, is to continually strive toward closing that gap, continually strive toward uh, that experience of greater life, abundant life, the fullness of shalom that God offers to us. And shalom, as I've just mentioned, and as Paul explains in Colossians chapter 3, is connected to gratitude. In fact, it's not just here in Colossians chapter 3. There are other places as well, as you'll see, where these two themes come together and cross paths. So it's significant for us to end our series of studies on the subject of shalom with some thoughts and insights about the nature of gratitude. In fact, if I, if I were going to just you know, kind of summarize by way of preview what I want to say to you this morning, I'm going to give it to you right up front. This is the punch. It's like you know, giving the punchline to the joke before you tell the joke. But that's okay. I'm going to give it away because I want you to really uh, dial in with me on the essence of, of this thought. Here it is. The more thankful we are for God's work in our lives the more God works in our lives. How's that for a thought this morning? Have you ever considered that reality? The more thankful we are for God's work in our lives, the more God works in our lives. Anybody want more of God's work in your life? Come on. So gratitude is essential. Let's explore then what greater gratitude looks like, what it takes, how it, uh, how it works, not only to the glory of God, but for our own benefit as well. Here's a brief story for you to kind of set the stage. 
Um, it's a story about the well-known author Rudyard Kipling. Anybody familiar with his work? Probably a lot of you. Um, I'm seeing Julie, our elementary school teacher, uh, right? Um, he's written a lot of children's books, fantastic children's books, and uh, maybe you're forgetting who he was because you're older and it's been a long time, but I, I'll virtually guarantee that most of you have read something by Rudyard Kipling, you just don't know it. Uh, he's a fantastic children's author. He was a great writer. So here's a story about him. Uh, he was a great writer and poet whose writings many have enjoyed. But unlike many old writers uh, back in the day when he was in the prime of his career, Kipling was one of the few writers who had the opportunity to actually enjoy success while he was still alive. His books were popularized while he was still alive. And as a result of that, he made a great deal of money. He was fairly well-to-do uh, as, uh, as authors go. So on one occasion, a newspaper reporter came up to him and said to him, Mr. Kipling, I just read that somebody calculated that the money you make from your writings amounts to over $100 per word. Not a bad deal if you're a writer. So Kipling, in response, raised his eyebrows like, really? And he said, really? I, 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 I certainly wasn't aware of that. And then the reporter cynically reached down into his pocket, and I wish I had one here, pulled out a $100 bill. And he gave it to Kipling, and he said, here's a $100 bill, Mr. Kipling. Now, you give me one of your $100 words. You know where this is going, right? Mr. Kipling looked at that $100 bill for a moment. He took it. He folded it up, put it in his pocket, and said, thanks. Thanks. The end. That's the end of the story. Thanks is the $100 word. Thanks. He's right, isn't he? He's right. It is a $100 word, if not more valuable than that. I think it might be even more valuable if we really understood what it does for us and how life-changing it really is to give thanks consistently. And yet, sadly, thanks is a word that is too seldom heard, too rarely spoken, and too often forgotten. So let me share with you some unique insights from Paul's words in Colossians 3, 15 to 17, one for each verse I'm going to give you, that I hope will raise your level of gratitude individually and raise our level of gratitude corporately as well. In fact, if I can just give you an image to kind of think about as I share these insights, imagine that, you know, you know like how every car has a dashboard, right? And you look at the dashboard and you can see different meters that reflect, uh, you know, how you're doing, like your oil level, your gas tank, your fuel level. Imagine that you had a built-in 
thankometer. A built-in thankometer. And you could just kind of, maybe you could pull it up as an app on your phone every once in a while and just check your level of gratitude. How would it be? How would you do if that were possible, right? If you could just look at an app that automatically diagnosed the level of gratitude in your heart, in your life at that moment, would it be consistently toward the full end? Or would it, you know, be a little closer to E? Where would you land if it were possible to consistently diagnose your own level of gratitude? Well, let me share some insights with you that I hope will raise your level of gratitude and will uh, fill your tank, if you will. And the first one is from Colossians 3.15, right? Here it is. Greater gratitude to God both reflects and enhances the rule of shalom in our hearts. This is where we see the connection between these two two themes. Colossians 3.15, Paul writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and... Oh, by the way, be thankful. Now, at first glance, it might seem like the last part of verse 15 there is unrelated to the first part, particularly in the NIV translation. And, you know, generally I like the NIV, but in this case, it's probably not the best translation when it comes to this verse. Because in the original Greek, This is all one sentence, not two sentences. So the end of verse 15 is not disconnected from the beginning of verse 15. It's not meant to be a separate sentence, a separate thought, a separate idea that's somehow disconnected from what comes first. In fact, a more fitting translation might be something like this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts into which, that is the peace, into which also you were called in one body and show yourselves becoming thankful. For the peace, that is. See, everything goes back to the subject of the sentence, which is the peace of God. That's the focal point of the whole sentence, the whole verse. The peace of God ruling in our hearts. And then there are two clauses at the end of the verse that both reflect back on that reality and add something to it. So, to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts is an individual experience that each one of us are meant to strive for. But then what Paul's saying is, oh, and there are two other things that are really important and connected to how you do that. The first one is that you would recognize that you're called to be part of a body, the body of Christ. And that the whole body is meant to let the peace of Christ rule in its presence, in its heart. So this is something we do together, not just alone. This is something we help each other with. This is something we experience more as we pursue it together. And then the second thought, the second clause at the end of the sentence is, don't forget to be thankful for God's peace. Don't forget, don't lose sight 
of gratitude. Be thankful. Become more thankful for the experience of peace ruling in your heart. Shalom, that is. So the sentence structure here all points back to letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. We do that individually, and we help each other with that corporately. And the more we do that, the more thankful we should be for that experience. Becoming thankful is the result of letting the peace of Christ rule in your heart. The more peace you experience, the more thankful you should be. The more peace rules in your hearts and in your relationships with others, the more thankful you should become for that reality. And this is natural, right? It's the natural outflow of recognizing what you've received from God. So like Kipling, receiving that $100 bill, whenever you receive peace from the Spirit of God, you ought to respond with, that simple thought, that simple word. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the wonder of what you've done for me. I honor you as the giver of peace, the giver of shalom. But now here's the surprising insight about this. The surprising insight is that this works in reverse as well. So gratitude doesn't just come from peace in response to peace it actually helps generate peace at the same time. It's reciprocal, right? It's cyclical. The the two flow back and forth together. The more peace you receive, the more grateful you are, and the more grateful you are, the more peace you receive. So becoming thankful isn't just for the glory of God. It's also for your own benefit. That's how God's designed this to work. The more thankful you are, the more of his peace fills your life. So, you know, we've learned together over the last few months. I hope you'll remember some of the things I've said about the nature of peace. One of the things that I tried to emphasize uh, on several occasions is that peace peace itself is not something we can generate. We can't manufacture it. We can't get it ourselves. We have to receive it from God. It comes from Him, right? It's the gift of God. It's the fruit of His Spirit's work in our lives. But the thing is, there are things that we can do that will make us more receptive to God's peace. And one of those is thanksgiving. The more you give thanks to God, the more you welcome his work in your life. It's as if you're saying thank you and more please all at the same time. So think of this. Here's an example, a cross-reference that might be familiar to many of you. These are Paul's words in another passage, one of his other letters, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, Present your request to God. Is that what it says? No? Who's paying attention here? Come on, I tricked you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, 
present your requests to God. In other words, don't just ask for what you need when you're feeling anxious. Don't just turn to God and ask Him for peace or ask Him for provision or ask Him for guidance. Do it with thanksgiving. Ask with thanksgiving for what you've already received from Him and what He promises to do for you in the future. Thanksgiving is critical. And what's the result when you do this? More peace. More peace. Look at the next verse. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. With these words, it becomes obvious that praying with thanksgiving helps enhance our experience of shalom. So we're thankful for shalom whenever we experience it. And the more thankful we are, the more we experience. This is a beautiful thing. The two work together, hand in hand. Now let's press on, because there's two more dynamic insights from these verses in Colossians 3 that I want you to think about. That's just the first one. Here's a second. Greater gratitude to God enlivens our corporate expression of worship. So why should you pursue greater gratitude? Why should you want gratitude to mark your life? Because it brings life and fullness and passion to our corporate expression of worship. Now here in verse 16, the focus, the emphasis as I mentioned already, because there's a hint of it in verse 15 too, is on a corporate experience, not an individual experience. What Paul's emphasizing in verse 16 is that that gratitude works in community just as it works individually. And that both dynamics are critically important. There's something vital that happens when we come together to give thanks. So Colossians 3.16, listen to these words. Let the message or word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. You know, maybe you've wondered sometimes, why do they sing so much? Anybody feel that way? Like maybe you're not a big singer and you come to church, you know, maybe you get here on time and you kind of suffer through the worship uh, or maybe you determine to show up 15 or 20 minutes late because, you know, the singing, it's just not for me. I just, I just want to go for the teaching. That's the meat, right? Well, wrong. No. Let me be the first one to say, not, not to diminish the importance of the message, Obviously, I don't want to undermine my own, you know, my own role, uh, my own gift. But, but at the same time, what I want to say is that it all hinges on worship, right? The effectiveness of the word is null and void if you haven't brought yourself into the presence of God with the right attitude so that you're receptive to what he wants to say. I could preach up a storm, but if you're not in the right frame of mind, 
to hear the Word of God and apply it to your life, if you don't recognize the greatness of who God is and what He's done for you and what He wants to do for you, and you're not receptive to that, then it doesn't matter what I say. So worship opens the heart and mind so that the Word of Christ can dwell among us. It becomes alive. It gets fleshed out in us as a community when we worship together with gratitude. So the reason we sing so much and the reason we do it even the way that we do it is intentional. Again, this isn't to say anything negative about any other church, any other expression of worship, but our desire, our intention is to say, we're going to press in to the presence of God and lift our hearts. Music is the language of the heart. So we do what we do for a reason. We're going to lift our hearts to the glory of God. We're going to, we're going to allow gratitude to well up within us as we come together in his presence so that our hearts are prepared for the word to find its home. And when that happens, when that happens, when, when we come together in gratitude with the right spirit of worship, and when we encounter the presence of God, when we do what the psalmist said, right? Enter, the, enter, the, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. When we do that together, the message of God's grace, the word of Christ, dwells among us. It's kind of a mysterious idea. But think about it. The message of God's grace becomes fleshed out in the people of God as they worship. That's important. Now, here's here's the catch, right? Here's the rub. This is the challenge. What Paul's saying is that our expression of gratitude is not just our own individual responsibility. It's something we're meant to do together. Together. And this is, this is tough, isn't it? Because honestly, can we just agree for a minute that our American sense of individualism has a hard time with things like this? We don't like to be told that we have to do anything together with others, generally speaking. But this is something God wants us to do together routinely. So week by week, we come together in the presence of God and we sing. We sing. Crazy as it seems, whether you like it or not, we sing because something happens when we come into the presence of God rejoicing and giving thanks. Something powerful takes place. Expressing gratitude to God in the context of our corporate worship gathering is fundamental to the life of the church. It's something God wants us to do together because he knows how valuable and powerful it really is. In fact, what Paul says is that as we sing psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, by the way, just a little side note, do you know what those are, songs from the Spirit? Spontaneous songs that the Holy Spirit places 
in your heart or on your mind in the moment. Sometimes we do that, and I feel like people are kind of fumbling around. What am I supposed to say? The words aren't on the screen. Well, no, they're not. In that moment, whenever we get there now and then, you're meant to just make up the words. Let them just tumble out from within you. That's a song from the Spirit. Let the Spirit of God rise up within you and just give voice to the wonder of who God is and what He's done for you. That's called singing in the Spirit. And it's a beautiful thing. So what happens then, what Paul's saying is that as we worship together with gratitude in our hearts, the grace of God is manifested. The grace of God gets fleshed out in our midst. It dwells among us corporately. And really, this is the essence of the gospel, isn't it? It's all about grace. This is why this is so important, right? A truly thankful church is a church that knows and represents the message of God's grace. Because the temptation we as humans all face is to focus on our own works instead of the works of God. Did you know that every other religion on the face of the earth is about good works? What sets Christianity apart and makes it different from every other religion? Maybe you've read the bumper sticker and you've thought, well, maybe it doesn't really matter. Maybe all paths do lead to heaven. No. What's different about Christianity is that you don't get there by good works. You get there by the grace of God. That's the essence of the gospel message. You can't get there by good works. You do good works in response to the grace of God, not to earn it. Right? So the point here is that worship with a grateful heart refocuses our attention as the body of Christ on what God has done for us not on what we do for him. That's the beauty of it. That's the wonder of it. That's the power of it. It refocuses our attention on what God is doing for us. So thanksgiving and worship corrects the wrong thinking that it's all about what we do for him. The focus on good works is corrected by gratitude. What this does is it puts God back in the center of our lives, right? The temptation for every human being is is to become, this is a big, this is like a, maybe not a $100 word, but maybe a $95 word. Are you familiar with this word? Anthropocentric? It's just worth a lot because it's, you know, kind of long and kind of complicated. Anthropocentric. It's the thought or the idea that you are at the center of your existence. You are at the center of the earth. You are at the center of life, right? It's all about you. There was a funny video I remember seeing. I should have played it this morning, but I don't have it. Um, Somebody took the, the old worship song, It's All About You, God, and they rewrote it as a spoof. It's all about me. It's all about me as if you should do things my way, right? And as funny as that sounds, that's the reality that most people live in, even some Christians. So worship 
with gratitude puts God back in the center where he belongs. It's our corporate expression that God's worth and God's works are greater than our worth and our works. To be ungrateful to God for the wonder of his grace is to miss the main element of the gospel message. In fact, there's a verse, a a cross-reference again that I think is really helpful here, and it's one of my favorites on the topic of worship with gratitude. It's Hebrews 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. You know what that means? Did you know that there is such a thing as unacceptable worship? If you want your worship to God to be acceptable to him, it has to be marked by gratitude. It has to be thankful. There has to be a sense of awe for who God is and what God has done. Because if there's not... You could just be going through the motions. You could be moving your lips, but if there's nothing happening in your heart, it's disingenuous. So what Hebrews 12.28 reminds us of is that, that for worship to be acceptable, it has to be grateful. It has to be thankful. It has to, has to be filled with gratitude to God for what he's done. Now, let me finish up with one last insight here. we got a few minutes left. I'm going to bring it home with verse 17. One last insight about the nature of gratitude here. Greater gratitude to God is meant to be both unconditional and inexhaustible. This brings us back to that image of the meter. Imagine if you had a built-in thankometer that you could look at on your phone and that would indicate the level of gratitude in your heart. And then imagine that every time you looked at it, it was always full. And it never went down to E. Wouldn't that be amazing? Imagine how your life might be different. Imagine how your attitude might be different if your thankometer was always on full. And yet, as crazy as that might seem, as hard to imagine as that might be for you, that's the heart of God for you. That's the desire of God for you. That's the invitation before you. Listen to this. Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let me just emphasize a few words in that sentence that I think are really important. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So when should you not be thankful? Never. 
That's right. Gratitude is meant to be unconditional and inexhaustible. Let me define those words for you. Unconditional means that it should never matter what circumstance you find yourself in or what you're doing. You should always be grateful to God. Anytime, anywhere. Inexhaustible means that this should be so abundant, gratitude should be so abundant and overflowing within you that is literally unable to be used up. It's inexhaustible. Now again, I'm telling you, this is not the way that most people think about gratitude. This is a challenge for us. I'm calling you out. I'm I'm calling you to step up. I'm calling you to raise your game. Gratitude is not just meant to be like for one day a year. Oh, it's Thanksgiving again. We get to give thanks to God today. We get to eat turkey and watch football and go shopping and be thankful. No. This is about thanks living. That was clever, wasn't it? Come on. Help me out a little here. For for too many people, for too many people, Thanksgiving is a once a year experience. It's a like a nice reminder. Oh yeah, I should be thankful. They sometimes they don't even know who they're thankful to. Like, I'm just thankful. What what Paul's calling us to is something on a different order, right? He's saying, like, it's nice that you have a, if Paul could be here right now, he'd say, you know, it's nice that you have a holiday to do this. That's great. But do it every day. I mean, like, why wait for the holiday? Do it all the time. This is a way of life. This is a lifestyle. So check your thinkometer. Where is it? How's your level? Is it on F or E? It can stay on F. But you have to develop the discipline of practicing gratitude consistently. So this is not something God will do for you. This is something that you have to do for him. It's a hard work. It's a good work. And he can't do it for you. You can ask him for help, of course, yes, You can pray for help with anything you need help with. But gratitude is your gift to him. And you have to work at doing it consistently. You have to work at doing it consistently. So what I'm saying is that gratitude is meant to be pervasive in our lives. Pervasive in the life of a Christ follower. It's meant to be an everyday occurrence that never gets old or routine. Every day, Lord, I am so thankful for what you're doing in my life. I'm so thankful to be alive again. I'm so thankful, Lord, for the job that I have, the family that you've given me. I'm so thankful, even in the midst of hardship, Lord, I'm thankful for the circumstances that I can't stand. I'm thankful for the circumstances that press me and stress me out because through them, you're teaching me to persevere. Through them, you're teaching me to trust you. Through them, you're teaching me to despise the things of this world and the pain that comes with them. 
Through this, you're teaching me to keep my eyes fixed on heaven and the hope of a, a, a better future. So God, I thank you. I thank you for the circumstance I'm in right now, even if it stinks. You ever prayed like that? Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, we ought to give thanks for all fortune. If it's good, because it's good. If it's bad, because it works in us, patience, humility, contempt of this world, and the hope of our eternal country. So give thanks all the time because God is good all the time. And these thoughts, of course, of C.S. Lewis echo the words of Paul, not just here in Colossians 3.17. Here's another one for you. In fact, this one's even a little more poignant, a little more convicting. Think about this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There you go. That's the word of God. That's the will of God. That's the heart of God. Now, this is hard. This is hard work, right? But it pays off when you give yourself to it. Let me close with a few examples, and then we're done. I'm going to give you three examples of this principle at work. One of them's from the Bible itself, and this one might surprise you. Do you know why the whale spit Jonah out? You ever thought about this? Why did the whale spit Jonah out instead of just digesting him? It wasn't because he didn't taste good. That was supposed to be funny. I'm sorry. I'm trying. I'm trying. It was because he gave thanks to God in the belly of the whale. So next time you're in a bad spot, next time circumstances aren't exactly what you desire, try giving thanks and see what happens. Maybe you'll be delivered from those circumstances. Just maybe the whale will spit you out. Here's the verse, right? Jonah 2, verses 8 through 10. He's praying. He's in the belly of the whale praying. And here's what he says, the end of the prayer. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Kind of funny, actually, if you think about it. Now, here's a second illustration, and I love this one because, as I've shared with some of you before, um, I've done a little, over the years, done a little work uh, with my dad in the genealogy of our family, and we discovered uh, back a few years ago that we had ancestors on the Mayflower, of all things. Pilgrims, the original pilgrims, kind of a cool discovery. And uh, what, what people, you know, when people imagine the first Thanksgiving, I think... One of the problems we tend to have is we idealize it in our minds. 
We idealize, oh, what a beautiful, what a beautiful day when the pilgrims and the Indians came together and they sat down to this glorious feast, some of which is true, but we forget the context. Do you know the context of the first Thanksgiving? They showed up in November of 1620. That is, the inhabitants of the ship that left Plymouth, England, called the Mayflower. It was carrying 102 passengers. 102 passengers. An assortment of religious separatists seeking a new home where they could freely practice their faith and other individuals that were lured by the promise of prosperity and land ownership in the new world. 102 passengers. After a treacherous and uncomfortable crossing of the ocean that lasted 66 days, they finally arrived and dropped anchor near the tip of Cape Cod. Throughout the first brutal winter, most of the colonists remained on board the ship, where they suffered from exposure, scurvy, and outbreaks of contagious disease. By the following spring, six months later, you know how many were alive? 51. Half. Half were dead. I mean, imagine you get on board this ship with your family, high hopes of a new life in the new world, religious freedom, and within six months of your arrival, you're the only one in your family still alive. Everybody else is dead. That was the reality that the pilgrims were living in. So by the end of that summer, that second summer, they were wondering, like the remaining 51 were wondering, are we going to make it or are we going to die too? Are we going to survive this journey or are we all headed to the grave? And in the midst of those thoughts, those wonderings, an Indian turns up at their encampment named Squanto. Maybe you know the story. He was a member of a different tribe, not the tribe that lived in that area. He'd been, earlier in his life, had been kidnapped by an English sea captain and sold into slavery, taken back to England as a slave. He escaped, went to London, and then eventually was able to return back to America on an exploratory expedition. So Squanto was probably one of the only Indians in New England that could actually speak English. And somehow, he found out about these settlers on Cape Cod, went to them, and offered to help. Taught them how to plant corn, how to fertilize it with the fish that they caught in the sea. Taught them how to hunt. Taught them the skills of the Native Americans in that area so that by the end of that summer, one year after their arrival, when they gathered the first harvest, Governor William Bradford called for a day, actually three days, of thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to survive 
That's the context of the first Thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for allowing us to survive. Thank you, God, that we're not dead yet. So the significance of the story is that it wasn't out of an abundance of life and provision that they celebrated the first Thanksgiving. It was out of the harsh reality of survival. Their circumstances were not great. They were getting better. They were a little better than they had been, you know, earlier that spring. There was hope for the future. But the harsh reality was that their circumstances were, were really difficult, really challenging. And there was a threat to each one of them. Now, last illustration I'll close with that I think is, again, similar in vain and teaches us, you know, reinforces the same principle is how Thanksgiving came to be a national holiday. There was a season in the time of our nation where it was forgotten. It was neglected. It didn't happen routinely, even once a year. But during the Civil War of all times, during the Civil War, as the nation was being ripped apart at the seams and people were dying everywhere, young men being killed in battle, leaving their families, leaving their wives as widows, leaving their children as orphans. In the midst of that experience, Abraham Lincoln determined that the nation needed to give thanks. And so he called for a national day of thanksgiving in the middle of the Civil War, 1863. It wasn't over, not by a long shot. In a proclamation entreating all Americans to ask God to, com- uh, to commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife and to heal the wounds of our nation, Lincoln scheduled Thanksgiving for the fourth Thursday in November. So the moral of the story is don't think that Thanksgiving is only for those moments in life when everything's going your way. Actually, the truth is that Thanksgiving is most powerful, most potent, most valuable when you do it in the midst of adversity. That's when it really pays off to keep your eyes fixed on the Lord.